I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. This episode of The Trade Guys, we will talk LNG exports. We'll talk the latest U.S. trade data and the tin mill steel case. Plus, we'll talk a little bit about the Super Bowl, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys, we are back. And what's really interesting is LNG, liquefied natural gas, is in the news once again because the Biden administration has announced a temporary pause on pending DOE Department of Energy authorizations uh, for exports to countries without a free trade agreement with the United States. They've also done some pausing on future plants down in Louisiana, which has got some people upset, but it's got the environmentalists cheering. What about all this? What Can you guys explain the nature of the freeze and what exactly is being paused here? And what are they trying, what is the administration trying to accomplish? Well, um, liquefied natural gas exports is a relatively new business for the United States. In fact, the first terminal that was built something like 20 years ago was built as an import terminal. We thought we were going to need to import liquefied natural gas. There would somehow be a shortage. This was before the revolution in shale gas and uh, unconventional drilling techniques, so-called fracking. And as Daniel Jurgen friend of the show has pointed out, that changed everything, including the world markets for natural gas. So the, the company that was building this import terminal fixed the plumbing so it could be an export terminal. And ever since then, exporting natural gas has been a growth industry in the United States. Now, it turns out the Natural Gas Act, which governs these kinds of operations, is administered by the Department of Energy. And DOE uh, is required to approve export authorizations unless it finds that doing so would not be in the public interest. And public interest tests are notoriously elastic in their definition. And the, basically what's happened here is the Biden administration has interpreted public interest to include the administration's high priority goals for climate, as well as, as other domestic economic goals. So it's a, it's a calculation that's almost unimaginably murky, but they've come out with the idea that Approving new export terminals is not necessarily in the national interest, and they paused the approval. They haven't, they haven't stopped anything that was already permitted or under construction, uh, and they haven't said how long the pause will be. And so the media is portraying this as a, a win for the Greens or the climate climate change caucus, and it probably is. And frankly, I think the poor deers needed a win. <laughs> if you look at what's happened to many of their favorite projects. Offshore wind being the one that was most obvious, every single offshore wind project uh, in the United States has been either canceled or or postponed for a long, long time, mostly because the projects don't make economic sense when the federal funds rate is at 5%. So many, many projects look smart uh, when we were close to the zero bound on federal funds rate. Now with the interest rates are real, these projects just aren't feasible anymore. Uh, likewise, battery-powered uh, cars, battery electric vehicles, appear to me to be they've got kind of a low ceiling outside of urban areas in in moderate climates. 
battery EVs are sort of the Danny Bataducci of motor vehicles. Uh, they, had, they had a great, uh, you know, child actor period, and they're having a tough time as an adult getting off the D list. So this technology is is more and more mainstreamed. It is less and less a mainstream technology. Speaking of Danny Bataducci, what about Bill Reich? Well, the, Bill Bill's still on the on on the A list in, in in our book, but uh, oh yeah, but uh, where Danny's had had a rough time since the Partridge family. Having said that. Uh, look, even General Motors, has, which was committed to 100% electric vehicles, okay, has reversed course and returned their R&D programs, and they're going to make hybrid vehicles again. So this is this is disappointing for people who thought this was the way to go and would would uh, would be a solution to the climate crisis. And it turns out, well, subsidies are a lot of fun, uh, but the, once you try to lower people's living standards, they kind of Tend to tend to vote you out of office, so things have been tough. So, but this is a win for them. Now, how big a deal is this? First of all, liquefied natural gas exports are not just the tail on the dog; they're probably the hair on the tail of the dog. The dog being domestic natural gas and its importance to the economy. So, here are the numbers: current export capacity for liquefied natural gas is 126 billion cubic meters a year. Now, there's about 80 billion under construction. So total between now and about 2028, the maximum export capacity will be 230 billion cubic meters. But that sounds big, but total U.S. consumption is 32 trillion cubic meters a year. So this export volume, including everything that's under construction now, is 0.7% of U.S. consumption. Now, what that means is domestic U.S. natural gas is really important, and this pause may make it cheaper, which is which will create economic resilience. So, what do we use natural gas for? Well, it's the foundation of our electricity grid. About forty percent of electricity generated in the United States is generated with natural gas. About two thirds of homes are heated with natural gas. That includes almost half of homes which use which have gas furnaces, and another twenty percent or so, which have electricity that's been generated by natural gas in the first place. It has massive and important industrial uses. The facilities that generate heat and power with natural gas are the source of real industrial competitiveness. It's one reason we have job growth in manufacturing right now is because of low gas prices driving driving efficient, cheap energy applied in industrial settings. And finally, agriculture. There's a wonderful book by a Canadian engineering professor and he talks about the four materials that created the modern world. It's plastic, steel, concrete, and ammonia. Ammonia is made from natural gas. It's used to produce nitrogen fertilizers. And there's no way to feed the world without ammonia. So you know, whether you're looking at, at households, basic electric power, home heating, industry, agriculture, those trillion cubic feet or so, the 32 trillion cubic feet, are, are central to our economy. And they're producing a tailwind right now for the economy because prices are low. Build fewer export terminals, prices stay low. Now, the question is how long the pause lasts. And my final comment is commodities don't just materialize out of thin air. There has to be demand for them. So if you cut down demand by, by not permitting new terminals, sooner or later, this low prices turn into high prices. Happens with every commodity. You have no doubt it'll happen with natural gas. So, so this is a win for the Biden administration. Yes. We're still the world's largest exporter of LNG. We prices are going to be lower. 
domestically. Right. Domestically. And the administration has given a win to, as you said, a group of environmentalists who, who, who severely needed a win. Now they have the win. And the win may be mostly <laughs> symbolic, but it's a win that they can chalk up nonetheless. Uh, so, Bill, is this a win-win-win for everybody? Other than the people in Louisiana who wanted the plant to be built. Well, yeah, not, not for everybody. First, I just want to say for the record, I was not a child star. <laughs> I know I know two of them. Uh, and for the trade wonks out there, uh, one of them uh, is our old friend Tim Grosser, former New Zealand ambassador, former New Zealand trade minister, who was, I think, probably for in his time, the most famous child star in New Zealand. Uh, but that was quite a while ago. But he did manage to translate that skill set uh, into being an ambassador and being a minister. So maybe there's something to be said for acting. Um, so maybe there's hope that we can see an ambassador, Danny Bonaducci, one day. Yes. That's, well, that one is doubtful. But <laughs> Shirley Temple, you know, exactly, uh, is a good example of, of, uh, of a success story there. Anyway, I, picking up on something Scott said, uh, or two things he said. I think this is going to, first of all, the, the market impact in the short term is minimal uh, because they've exempted, you know, this does not affect current exports. And as he noted, does not affect projects that are in construction, which will nearly double the, our, our capacity. So anybody who's panicked about this uh, shouldn't be too worried. Can't do math. And uh, the, But there are people that are panicked about it, mostly the foreigners who are relying on the exporters, exports, particularly the Europeans, because the Russians have cut them off and we promised to step in and have reiterated that promise. So I think they're feeling a little bit better. But the real issue there, I think, uh, and this goes back to something Scott said, is there may be a big difference here between short-term demand and long-term demand. In the short term, there's a lot of demand, thanks to the Russians. And, you know, we're maxing out and there are, you know, short-term growth prospects, I think, are, are decent. Uh, long term, you know, the EU is committed to phase it out, to phase gas out. Now, we'll see if they get there. But, you know, they're determined to phase it out. There are the environmentalists here would prefer to phase it out if they could. I mean, that's not in the near term. But if you think about this over 10 or 20 years, you know, this may be an industry whose future is a lot less bright than it is right now. And that then raises the question of whether the uh, whether the administration might be a little more farsighted than they're being credit being given credit for. And that while they're accepting, you know, the near-term construction of new projects, it may not make sense actually to encourage more new projects in the future if you project a, a significant decline of demand down the road. That's one thing. The other thing that intrigues me is the argument about uh, the environmental aspects of this. There are people who have opposed this uh, basically on the grounds that LNG replaces coal and gas is environmentally better than coal, which it is. Uh, you know, I don't think that's debatable, except that the environmentalist response is uh, that's only true if you don't consider how the LNG is produced, the energy that is used to produce the, the LNG, and whether that is coal-fired energy or oil or gas-fired energy, uh, in which case uh, it may not be better than coal from an environmental standpoint. So I don't know the uh, I don't know the truth of that, but it's an interesting argument. Uh, the proponents, uh, I should say, the opponents of what Biden has done, and the proponents of more gas, are arguing that more gas actually is the environmentally sound, the greener solution, because particularly with Europeans, it's intended to replace coal, 
Um, the environmentalists don't buy that, but it's, you know, it's an interesting debate. Oh, the other thing, let me mention one more thing if I can. There is a question here that uh, comes up and it's going to come up more and more often, I think, in the future, which is U.S. reliability uh, and the reliability of, of uh, in the U.S. marketplace. Countries that have become dependent on U.S. exports, of which this is one, uh, get nervous every time we do something about this, even though the market impact uh, is probably in the short term zero and may even be in the long term zero. That doesn't mean they're not nervous. And, you know, in a way, this is not that different uh, potentially uh, from other countries who shall remain nameless, uh, who have occasionally threatened to cut off their exports um, to the United States. And we've been very worried about that. I mean, you know, everybody plays this game. And this is a case where, you know, we're not doing it as an economically uh, for, uh, do as an instrument of economic coercion. Uh, we're doing it uh, for environmental reasons. But it ends up raising doubts in the marketplace about U.S. reliability as an exporter. And that has uh, broader consequences. It's simply gas. And it has long-term consequences. It's hard to come back from that uh, once you've done something like this. So let me ask this, just as a final thing on LNG. How are our allies and partners reacting to this pause? They've been mostly calm uh, after the briefings. Initial unhappiness and now calm, yes. Yeah, I think that Bill's right. They were initially concerned. They're now calm, mostly because it really doesn't affect anything in the near term, and near term being through like 2028, because that's the current construction schedule. And I think that's probably a, a, a wise view. But once again, the notion of a national interest is quite complicated, quite messy. So I think I think there's... There's a case to be made. They've done a decent job. Gentlemen, I want to turn to the latest U.S. trade data, which the U.S. trade deficit narrowed in 2023 by the largest margin since 2009, uh, according to government data just released. Uh, and it reflects significant growth in the service services exports spurned by shifting consumer demand. U.S. goods and services deficit fell by almost 19%. In 2023, uh, according to the Census Bureau report for December, exports climbed by 35 billion or 1.2%, and imports contracted by more than 142 billion or 3.6%. So, what does a contraction in the trade deficit say about our economy? I think it's a sign of of um, economic health. I mean, I think it's good news. You can take it apart a little bit. Uh, uh, first of all. You know, even with the reduction that uh, you just talked about, the deficit was still 773 billion, uh, which is an enormous amount. So we continue to rack up very large deficits. So directionally, what happened this year is is good. I think it's a sign that our our manufacturers and particularly our services, as you noted, are competitive globally, and that's uh, that's good news because uh, there have been times when we struggled. But I think if this is a sign that we have we're, we're competitive. The question there's a couple questions. One, of course, is always is this a blip or, or a trend? You know, what will 2024 and 2025 look like? Are we on a permanent downward path? I think we are probably on a long-term downward path, but with China. But as we've discussed in the past, the downturn with respect to China specifically is really counteracted by increased imports from various Southeast Asian nations beginning with Vietnam, and, and you can make a good case that 
they're really Chinese in disguise, uh, some of them. In fact, there's some litigation about that. I think the other question that I simply don't have the data for right now is how much of that nice picture is oil and gas? Because uh, we are now the biggest you know, exporter in the world, which is great uh, for our deficit and, and significant. Uh, it, I wonder if uh, you know, what I just said about the competitiveness of our products is really true if, if most of this gain is due to oil and gas uh, export increases. Scott, maybe you know the answer to that. I don't. Well, yes, but you've got to disaggregate that to find it out. Crude oil exports are one part of the story. But refined products, which are which are actually value-added processed goods, uh, are an important export for the United States. And so, re- refined petroleum and uh, and other kinds of, of of downstream petrochemicals uh, are are part of the export success story. And they are they're real manufacturing. That's the, the very sophisticated chemistry uh, done by uh, companies with massive investments. So it's not it's not. It's not just crude oil, that's for sure. But for me, the story is better seen from from stepping back a little bit. Now, Bill's right that we still do run a fairly large current account deficit, as we have for many years. Smaller, but still pretty big. However, we've been on the COVID roller coaster when it comes to the balance of goods and services. You'll recall in 2020, when we shut down a lot of domestic services like restaurants and theaters and and, and shopping malls and restricted people's movements, uh, we all stayed home and bought stuff, all right? And that stuff turned into a big import uh, surge in the good side of the equation. So we seem to have balanced that out. And of course, that was the beginning of the supply chain disruptions that were a frequent topic on this show for a couple of years. There were a lot of cardboard boxes yes. in recycle bins during COVID. No that question sure. about it. We all fixed stuff up and bought stuff. And uh, it was at a different time. But in any case, it looks like a more normal year that we're, we're finally through that surge and, and back to balance. Uh, and so for me, the, I think the good news is the growth in services trade, which gets a bad rap. Look, Washington is hopelessly romantic about agriculture because Every, as Bob Strauss pointed out, every state has two senators and at least two cows. <laughs> uh, but uh, most of the people who are sentimental about average, about agriculture never worked on a farm. Uh, but likewise, there's a lot of, of boosters for goods exporters and goods exports in general being, those are real exports and somehow services exports aren't. And I think services exports are an excellent value added to the economy. They are in, this is not, would you like fries with its services? This is high technology stuff. And it's importantly, big employers, sectors like travel and tourism, education. The entertainment sector, as you know, Andrew, is very high tech. You look at Hollywood productions. You look at the number of jobs on the sets of those Hollywood films. I mean, that's big business and, all, and big job creators. Plus, we have you know big music industry. We have uh, the social media platform companies are part of the services export story. Where the United States has a demonstrable advantage, and they're, they're creating good jobs and creating a good image for American products. So I'm happy to see the services industries doing well outside the United States. I think it's good news too. I agree with that, particularly since our, our economy is about 75% services. It's uh, nice to see that 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 growing. Um, the, there is this not only a fascination with agriculture because of Farms are everywhere. It's also because because they're everywhere. They have a, a good bit of, I think, influence in Congress. 
Yes. Uh, but uh, this is the, the Biden administration in particular is also fixated on sort of old line manufacturing. They're fixated on steel, aluminum and metal and cars and things like that. And that's important. It's particularly important in states that help Biden win the election, which has something to do with their fixation. But in a way, that's the old economy, you know, and steel has never been an exporting industry. It's it, And the issue, the trade issue with steel has always been about imports, uh, not about uh, about exports. But, uh, you know, you it's, I think, a fair question for the administration. Of, why aren't they spending more time on services? Why aren't they spending more time promoting services and dealing with the challenges that service providers face in other countries instead of spending all their time on, on industries that are politically, uh, that are more important politically than they are economically, I guess let's put it that way. All right, guys, before we get to the biggest news of the week, which is, of course, the Super Bowl, and you guys know how depressed I am that my Ravens are not in it. We'll get to that in a minute. I wasn't going to say anything about that, Andrew, uh, but I'm, it's, my condolences. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. It has been a rough, rough week for me watching the Kansas City Chiefs and their entourage celebrate in Las Vegas in anticipation of the big game. But we'll get to that in a minute. Don't worry. Uh, first, I want to talk to you guys about the tin, a tin mill steel case, which you know, the U.S. International Trade Commission on Tuesday voted to strike down anti-dumping duties on tin mill steel used in food cans from Canada, China, Germany, and South Korea, finding that these imports do not injure domestic steelmakers. So what was at issue at the center of this ITC uh, decision uh, on imported tin mill steel? I think it's become noteworthy in the media because it doesn't happen very often. Uh, most of the time, the commission votes affirmative. And uh, this gives an opportunity for a, a small trade law lesson. Uh, I was struck by, uh, uh, I, I think, there, you know, there were uh, two sets of, complaint, of of comments that were made after this decision, uh, both of which missed the point. Um, the consumer uh, the consumer part of the industry, basically the people that make tin cans uh, and other issue things out of tin, said, you know, this is a victory for consumers. It's a victory for lower prices. It's a victory for, you know, uh, the, uh, for the the good guys in this particular transaction. Um, and the losing side, the the president of the relevant local union, said, you know, I don't understand their decision. We proved they were dumping, you know, and you know the the truth is, a, uh, they did prove they were dumping. But that's not because commerce found dumping margins of various amounts, depending on which country it was and which company it was. But uh, under the, our, our laws, in fact, under WTO rules, that's, you only, that's only one of the two things you have to prove. The other thing you have to prove is that you're injured, and not only that you're injured, but that you're injured by reason of those imports. So recession doesn't count. Uh, change in consumer taste doesn't count. You have to demonstrate that if you're hurting, uh, you're hurting because of the imports that are the subject of the investigation. And apparently they couldn't pass that bar because that's all the commission considers. The commission doesn't consider the amount of dumping or the fact of dumping. They look only at injury. And the fact that the vote was unanimous was uh, was telling, you know, until they issue the printed or the electronic version of the full report with all the data that they used in their their arguments, it's hard to say what their rationale was, but I suspect they're going to say that the uh, the industry is not in as bad shape uh, in general and not in as bad shape on these products as it was saying. 
and that they didn't pass the injury bar. The other erroneous statement, I think, came from the consumer side that was is basically claiming this is a victory for consumers, you know, and the answer is it, it isn't. The, the, I mean, it turned out that way, but that wasn't, the commission is not charged with considering the, uh, the economic impact of their decision. The commission is charged with doing one thing, and that is deciding whether or not the domestic industry that filed the complaint is, has been injured by reason of the imports. The fact that, that an affirmative finding would have a downstream impact on tin cans that would raise prices is not something that they take into account. And so it's, it's, it's wrong for the union to argue that the commission made a mistake just because it was dumping. That's not the commission's job. It's equally wrong for the, uh, the winning side to say, you know, this is a vindication of the consumer argument. It is not a vindication of the consumer argument. Well, as a longtime watcher of, uh, of anti-dumping and countervailing duty actions, for me, the surprise was that uh, the legal team for the complainants did not structure a case that, that, that met the injury definition. And unlike national interest, uh, meeting the definition of injury and under our uh, unfair trade laws is a fairly straightforward matter. And it's there, there are ways, things to include or not include. There are time periods. And most of the attorneys who bill at fairly high rates for this particular line of work know really well how to structure the case to win. So I was a little surprised by a unanimous decision of no injury, given the high-powered lawyers involved. But sometimes it works out that way. Sometimes there is no injury. As I read it, which is an incomplete interpretation, one of the facts is that the food, food manufacturers use a very high grade of, of this, this type of steel, and it's not really in production in the United States. Different grades are made here, which is why they use imports. The commission doesn't vote negative very often, but you know I, I teach this stuff uh, occasionally. And the point I make is, if you want to think about the process, the Commerce Department is a little bit like a grand jury. It almost always indicts. I mean, it almost always finds an affirmative dumping or subsidization. And the issue there that the lawyers argue about is is rarely the fact of the dumping, it's the amount of the dumping. And the foreigners will come in and say, well, it's de minimis. You know, maybe it's 1% or something. And the domestic complainant petitioner will come in and say, oh, it's 300%. You know, they're driving us out of the market. And so all eyes are on the department's decision about the how much dumping there is. You know, is it 1%? Is it 50%? Is it 10%? Because whatever that amount is, that's the, dump, that's the tariff that goes into effect once they make a final decision on it. And so that's where the argument is. The commission's uh, job is more uh, is more uh, bipolar, you know, yes or no. They're either injured or they're not. And they find a, they find affirmative less often than the Commerce Department finds affirmative. I would say the Commerce Department finds affirmative probably in the range of 90 percent. Um, I think the commission finds affirmative probably more in the 70s. So a lot. Uh, and that's why this is noteworthy. And it's particularly noteworthy on a steel case because the steel guys don't lose very often. And it'll be interesting to see uh, if this is uh, if something's changed and if there are future steel cases, if the same thing happens again or not. I think a lot of people will be watching the next few cases to see if there's a trend here. Well, the Baltimore Ravens don't lose very often either, but they did. And, <laughs> and thus we've got San Francisco 49ers versus Kansas City Chiefs. Scott, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking as a trade guy that this is a great example of how everyday consumers benefit from trade. Because the Super Bowl is a huge international event, 110 million viewers, 
and about $17.5 billion of consumer spending. And that's not all in Vegas at that stadium. Uh, it's party food. And a lot of the party food, because it's fresh and wholesome because it's imported. Avocados, believe it or not, 20% of total U.S. avocado consumption happens on Super Bowl Sunday. 20% of the whole total, one day. Wow. I mean, it's like probably about that much for pumpkin pie filling on Thanksgiving. It's just one amazing thing. And of course, this time of year, it's cold in the north and warm in the south. So avocados from Mexico and Chile and our southern neighbors, where we have free trade agreements, wind up being what's on people's guacamole or what or the ingredient in the guacamole. So tomatoes, same story. About 70% of, uh, of tomatoes consumed at the Super Bowl are imported, probably from Mexico and aftermarket. There's a wonderful, wonderful statistic here, Scott. 12 billion chicken wings, 50 million cases of beer, 28 million pounds of chips, and 54 million avocados will be consumed on Super Bowl Sunday. That's incredible. Now, keep in mind, the leading beer in the United States is a Mexican beer. Uh, Modelo Especial is the number one seller. That's now, it's it's more than Corona? Yes. Wow. And so, very impressive uh, performance by them. But When did that happen? uh, It happened when Bud Light declined. Huh. But it's it's a light beer. And uh, poised to take market share. So they've done very well, but there are lots of imports. But also, if you're watching on a big screen TV and I'm watching on my Samsung uh, Jumbotron, uh, that's a a product of not of the United States, but one of our trading partners, Korea. Uh, If you're wearing a game jersey, uh, Travis Kelsey's jersey was made in the United States. Your uh, fake Travis Kelsey or even NFL endorsed Travis Kelsey jersey, check the tag, probably imported. But then again, there are some exports. The National Football League is a services exporter. And most importantly, Taylor Swift is a big services exporter because she has an international following. Big time. And, you know, look, the groundhog saw his shadow. So we had two more weeks of Taylor Swift. Sorry about that, Andrew. Well, I would just know that my church has an annual uh, uh, Super Bowl, S-O-U-P-E-R, Super Bowl Sunday, uh, where the people come in and can vote on who's going to win, uh, money all going to the youth group for various, for summer activities. Um, but this year is a little bit different because you can, this year you can vote at the assistance of, of, of the youth pastor. You can vote for the Chiefs, you can vote for the 40, 49ers, or you can vote for Taylor and Travis. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm going to go for the 49ers mostly because of of those wonderful Ohio State Buckeyes who are playing on the defensive line. There you go. Uh, Mr. Bosa and, and uh, Mr. Young. Yes, and and Chase Young, yes. So, But but also, I have a serious policy pr- proposal for the United States Congress. I say we move President's Day to the Monday after the Super Bowl. It will be a major improvement in productivity in America. That's such a good Nobody idea. Nobody cares what day President's Day is, but everybody wants to sleep in the morning after the after the big game. So... I rest my case. No question. I know I do. I know I do. Uh, Well, anyway, guys, we'll have to wait and see about Taylor and Travis. We'll have to wait and see who wins the game. Uh, I'm going with Kansas City. I I, I saw them march into Baltimore, and I saw that they meant business. I think they mean business. So You're an AFC guy. You've got to do that. An AFC guy, exactly. Well, until next week, guys. when we, when we will have much, much more to talk about. Thanks so much. Including the game. Including the game. Thank you. 
to our listeners. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.